0: Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding. It's John Green, your host, and it is uh, September the 27th, the year 2020, which continues to be just a weird year. We've got an apple tree out in front of our house, and we picked all the apples off of it uh, about a month ago. And we did it because the leaves had all fallen off of the tree. And the bizarre thing now is I started seeing something on it a few days later, maybe, And thought, well, maybe that was there before, and I just didn't pay attention because there were so many dead leaves. Well, now that thing is almost halfway covered again in new growth. And we've had multiple blooms in late September. Makes no sense, but nothing about 2020 does. So why should that be any different? It's been a good week. Um, we had some rain towards the end of the week, so I'm not going to get to go hiking this weekend because everything would be too muddy or there'd be water on the trail, I don't feel like dealing with that today, to be honest with you. I'm doing a wedding this afternoon uh, at 3 o'clock, and I'm really looking forward to it. It's a friend of mine who is the uh, manager of the gym that I go to. His name happens to be Green as well, great guy, Um, so I'm looking forward to doing the wedding for Steve and Alyssa this afternoon, so I'm excited about it. It's been a while since I've done a wedding. It feels like a new thing again, sort of like that tree. There's, there's a new thing coming into being. Do we perceive it? And that's a lot of what I want to talk about today is what do you perceive? Do you see the evidence that's right in front of your eyes, or are we missing the Lord in a lot of ways? So anyway, we had a good walk. I took off uh, one day. I took off part of the day and went walking. Suzanne and I went out to a place called the Big East Fork which is about, I don't know, 45 minutes or so from here, depending on how you go. Um, we had been down there once before, and there were a lot of people there. And I didn't feel like going out in the woods with half the world, so we passed it that day and did something more fun. And then this week, though, we went back out there, and there was, there was like three or four cars in the parking lot, so it was great. We went out, and um, I had looked at it on alltrails.com, and saw that there were people who complained about this trail a little bit. People liked it, but they complained about it. It's beautiful. It goes right outside along the East Fork of the Pigeon River, and there's a lot of uh, beautiful scenery. And, but what people said was there are no markings for this trail. And sure enough, there weren't. And people had gotten off the trail often enough that they cut another trail that was slightly more difficult to follow. However, it got us back to the main trail. So we got back to the trail, because I followed the wrong one. And then it looped back up on itself, and I thought, this is not good. We're going the wrong way. So we went back to where we got off the trail, and then turned back around and went back up the trail where he had just come from. And then there were a couple of other little misadventures, let's say, along the way. And then we finally got to a place but because of the rain, it was in passable kind of a crossing the water would flow too heavily and just weren't going to be able to cross it I'm going to tell you Suzanne did some grumbling she murmured against me there in the wilderness it's what we do when things don't go our way when we don't feel comfortable anymore when we're not sure where we are when we're disoriented we begin to murmur and so she did so i struck a rock and brought water that's the first lesson actually that's not what i did so the first lesson is indeed exodus 17 1 to 17 the congregation of the people moved from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the lord so the lord's telling them what to do you go here and then you go here and then you go here and they're being obedient to that. And then they camped at a place called Rephidim, but there was no water there for the people to drink. That's an important thing. It's not wrong to want water because God designed you so that you need water for life. So the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. It's like he's a shepherd. He's shepherding people. And remember that he shepherded his father Jethro's flocks for 40 years. And so here he leads his people into the wilderness, the wilderness where, frankly, he had kind of come from. And they want him to give them water to drink. They demand it, in fact. And he says, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Moses, again, just like he did in the previous week, he he immediately points them in the right direction. What's the point in quarreling with me? Why are you testing the Lord? He's trying to teach them to do one real simple thing when they get into trouble like this after following the Lord, and that's pray. He'd done all the plagues in Egypt. They had seen all that he had done there. They saw then the parting of the Red Sea and all that. You'd think by now, they understood this, the way this works. Hey, we run into difficulty. We need help. The Lord brought us out here. We followed him all the way here. And then now here we are with no water for ourselves or for our flocks and herds. And, and Moses is right. Why are you quarreling with me about that? Why are you testing the Lord here? And the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us out out of Egypt to kill us and our children, and our livestock? with thirst. You know, when you become aware that you're thirsty and, and you grumble and there's no solution to it, you get thirstier. You become acutely aware of a problem and then you can't think of anything except the problem. And it, and it becomes overwhelming and it becomes the only thing in your I just need to solve this problem. If I could get past this, then everything would be fine. And what God's telling us to do frequently when he takes us into a place like that is figure out a way to make this work. Trust me for the next step. But in the meantime, rest in my love. Rest in my presence. Rest in the knowledge that I'm with you brought you here, just like he brought them to the Red Sea, because he gave actually Moses the particular strategy for how to leave that put them at the Red Sea with Pharaoh's army chasing them. God told them, double back so that Pharaoh's army can see you. And then he put them there at the Red Sea and blocked them off. That was a much bigger problem in some ways. And so now they say, you're trying to kill us. This is the second time they suggested it was much better in Egypt. At least there, you weren't trying to kill us. So Moses' motive is obviously he brought them there to kill them, right? But that's how we think. We get stuck and we spin in our rut and the rut gets deeper and then we say stupid things. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us? Moses cries to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. That seems like a plan. Let's stone the only guy who's ever been out here before where we are, the guy who is God's chosen representative. Let's kill him because we're thirsty. But those are the kind of stupid solutions we come up with, right? So the Lord says, pass before the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go, behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He did exactly what God told him to do. Take some of the elders of Israel, pass before the people, and go and do this, and water will come out of the rock, and the people will drink. It required a little faith. on <laughs> well, Moses had part to do that. Now, I had a, a professor of Old Testament, Alan Ross, And Alan led, I don't even know how many trips to Israel, and they would go into the wilderness, and and he would tell us stories about what people would say coming up with a naturalistic explanation for what happened here, and that is, is that this stuff would calcify over time. There were natural springs, and then calcification would happen in a rock like that and block up the thing. And so if you just knew where to hit the rock, then that little bit of stuff would come off of it and water would flow. And he said, sure enough, it does. I've seen it many times in the wilderness. He said, about enough to fill a Dixie cup, which is not going to feed in water 600,000 plus people and their livestock. So, yeah, you can come up with a naturalistic uh, explanation for water from a rock, but it doesn't fit the actual scenario. He said, same with bushes that burn, combust in the desert like that. He said, they do. Occasionally there are bushes that catch on fire, but not the way that one did in Exodus 2. They don't catch on fire without burning it up. It's a different thing. There's also weird explanations for where manna comes from. It was bug vomit. That's a lot of bugs. Again, same deal. But he strikes the rock and water comes out. And he called the name of the place Masa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? They're looking for his presence. That's their fear. It's their constant fear while they're in the wilderness. It's it's the thing that causes them to make a golden calf. They don't know where Moses is going, so they do that. They're constantly requiring the Lord to prove himself in the wilderness, And they're asking the question, is he among us or not? Well, it says that they got where they were by the commandment of the Lord. So they were following him. And you know what? Sometimes that's the hardest thing about following him is he takes us in places that look like dead ends. He takes us in places that look like this is not where I want to be. It's hard. It was much easier when I was doing something else. I thought that often in... For many years of ministry, and even today, occasionally I'll have a a lapse in judgment where I think, you know what, it would have been easier if I had just stayed in consulting work, if I just continued to be an expert witness. Because there's always work for anybody who investigates fraud, because there's always fraud. And so sometimes that looks easier. Turning back, going back to where we were before sometimes seems like the easiest way to do things. God's constantly calling us forward and it's because he wants to give us greater revelation of himself. He always wants us to know more of him. Always his desire to reveal more things about himself and then ultimately in Jesus he reveals everything we need to know about his love for us. So let's go to the gospel and look what happens there. So Jesus is in the temple. We're towards the end of his life here. In Matthew 21, 23 to 32, he enters the temple and the elders and the chief priests come up to him as he's teaching and say, "By what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? They're not asking for information. What they're actually saying is the only people who could have given you authority are standing right here because we have authority over who teaches what, where, and when in the temple precincts. So they're saying, so, hey, we're all here. None of us gave you the authority to do that. Where do you get the authority? And Jesus answers, them. I'll ask you a question. If you tell me the answer, then I'll also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where did it come from? Heaven or man? And they, the chief priests and the elders, discussed it amongst themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man... We're afraid of the crowd. They believe John's a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Huh. You don't know. Okay, so Jesus says, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. They know what authority it is. They deny it to be true. He has the authority of the Father, who is the one being worshipped there. This is his temple. Not theirs. He has that authority. But he asked that question because he put them on the defensive. And they parsed it well. We can't say this because we didn't believe. We can't say this because the people believe that John's a prophet. So they come up with, we don't know. All right, chucklehead. (laughs) That's the way that it goes with Jesus, though. He confronts them with questions rather than allowing them to dictate the terms of things. He put them on the spot in front of all these people who were there listening to him teach. And it's an important question. He's directing attention to John specifically because these people rejected John, didn't believe him, but the people Jesus, to whom Jesus is teaching, did believe John was a prophet. And as a prophet, what did he do? What was his prophetic word? He's coming. And then we baptize him, he's here. Behold, the Son of God takes away the sins of the world. That's the prophetic word John gave. The prophetic word was, he's coming. And then the prophetic word at the baptism is, he is here. And it's an important word. It's the important work of preparation for the coming of Jesus. John might not have seen exactly Jesus' mission, the mission of the cross. He saw the mission of judgment not the message of forgiveness, the message of redemption, the message of grace that precedes judgment. John came to point the people back to God. Well, why did he have to do that? Because there were chief priests and elders. But it was because it were these guys who are now confronting Jesus in the temple and asking him about what authority he teaches these things. So it's because of them that john had to come they were failing to do their jobs they were bad shepherds they were in it for themselves they were in it for their own glory and so jesus exposes them here and exposes them through pointing to john as john pointed to him previously and then he looks at the people and he he tells them a little quick story what do you think A man had two sons and he went to the first and said son go work in the vineyard today and he answered i won't but afterward, he changed his mind and he went to the other son. He said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But then he didn't go. Jesus said, which of the two did the will of his father? They said the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes going to the kingdom of God before you. For God. John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you didn't afterwards change your minds the first son had a change of heart asked to go work in the vineyard he said I won't go and then he did he wanted to do the will of his father he didn't want to do it initially but then he did it later and then the other son said he would go and then he didn't there's a song a rock song called a little less talk and a lot more action that's what Jesus is saying is go Do the work that you've been given to do. Obey the will of the Father. But they were too comfortable to go and do that. There was a risk involved in that. It made it harder. There was no promise that it was going to be easy. In fact, Jesus promised it was going to be hard. He promised that that we'd be hated. And that we'd be badly treated. Because the evidence was that he was badly treated. But he's asking them to see the evidence of their eyes. What did you see in John? What do you see in me? You've seen the miracles. You've seen all the things that I've done. And yet you still don't believe. And you're still asking questions like, by what authority are you doing these things? Teaching in miracles. By what authority does Jesus do those? They see this. He's told them that he does the will of the Father and the works of the Father. And yet they're still asking him this question. By what authority do you do these things? You mean like healing the blind? Do you mean like uh, restoring hearing to the deaf? Speech to the dumb? Do you mean like driving out demons? Healing a woman with an issue of blood for a dozen years? Healing men who are paralyzed for over three decades? By what authority does he do those things? Because they've seen them. And we know they've seen them because they constantly question him when he does them. So you've seen... If you follow Jesus for any period of time, you've seen him act in your life. You might be in a place now where you'd rather not be, but he's still there. And you're there for a reason and a season. But he'll move on. But that season requires you to stay where you are and do what you can in the place where you are in faith. Believing that he's with you because you've seen him. Over the course of your life, you've seen him provide for you. You've seen him do all kinds of things for you. I've seen miraculous healings, no less so than the ones that are described in the Gospels or in the book of Acts, for that matter. I've seen those things. I know the evidence in my eyes. I know that I've prayed and seen people healed, not because of me but be, or my faithfulness, but because he's good and he's able. And so here, they're confronting that question, and Jesus is pointing them back to John and saying, you heard John. These tax collectors and prostitutes, all those people, they believed, and they turned around. They're no longer just tax collectors. They're no longer prostitutes. They're now new life. Look at the evidence of those people and the power of the message, and that's the authority. You'll see the authority is to change lives, to change hearts. And then Paul, writing to the Philippians, he says, If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul's constantly calling them to unity. Unity is important because there's a great power in unity. But he's, he's pleading at the beginning of this. is If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, and, and the answer to that is presumed to be, well, of course there is, of course there is, of course there is. There's not just any encouragement, any comfort, any participation in the Spirit, any affection, any sympathy. There's abundant measures of all those things. And that Paul's calling them to remind themselves of those things. Think on those things. Remember what you've received from him. Remember what you're still receiving to this day. And then he calls them to that unity. He calls them to, to be the church. The ecclesia, those who are gathered in the name of Jesus. Because that's where the power is. And the church doesn't have power today because we're not of one mind in full accord. We're divided. And so we lack power. We're failing to do the work that we've been given to do. And then he says, don't do anything from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but the interests of others. Most of us are so preoccupied with our own interests, that we don't even have time or room for anybody else. And Paul's saying, look, get out of your own head. Consider your brothers more important than you. If we did that, if the church did that, if we weren't so consumed with ourselves, our politics, our whatever, if we considered the needs of others and took into account the interests of others and raised them up and provided for them and did for them as brothers and sisters in Christ, then again, we'd have more power. And then he tells us how to do it. Have this mind in yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality quality of God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He says, be like that. Think of yourself that way. You've seen it in Jesus. You know exactly how that worked. You saw him lay down his own life for the sake of others. You heard him. You know the story of the Last Supper where Jesus tells them this very same message to become like a servant to your brothers and sisters, and that love is the thing that's to bind us together, love for one another. We can get so consumed with love for ourselves one way or another because love can be a perverted thing. We can be so consumed with ourselves that we spend all our time in therapy. We, we talk about our problems, our ills, our whatevers all the time, and we don't have time for to hear anybody else who might actually have greater problems, I talked to a lady this week, wonderful conversation through my work in Amazon, she was fantastic, great spirit, excited, loves Jesus, all this kind of stuff, we talked for a long time, and, and she was so uplifting, and then I made a comment, because I asked what she, what her business was, and she told me her business was to help people retrofit their houses for special needs like disabilities, I said, oh, how did you happen to get that? She said, John, I've been in a wheelchair since 1966. And what happened to me, and she explained it to me, but she said, when that happened to me, I was the second person anybody ever heard of who had this happen to them. Usually what happened, that the same thing happens in the brain and they can do something with it, but it hit her in the spinal column and she's paralyzed from the waist down. And I said, I am so thankful for somebody like you who has this attitude about their own um, disability and that you're using that as a way to help other people and help them make their lives better. And she said, John, I've always just felt like whatever happens, happens for a reason. And it's where you're meant to be. And so I can't tell you that I've never complained, but, but I've always accepted it. Because there's no benefit to not accepting it. And I said, You, you wouldn't believe it. Pastoral counseling I've done, the, the way that people so focus on themselves. And, I, and sometimes all you can do is listen and think Do you see the lady next to you in the wheelchair who's been there since 1966? Do you see that at all? No, we're too self consumed, self absorbed. So, we got to get outside of ourselves. If we can do that, then we can begin to serve one another the way that Jesus served us and love one another. And what I'm saying is that's a perverted love that we can love each other, love love ourselves so much that it becomes warped and twisted love, and we don't have any love for anybody else. We don't even hear one another. We don't even see one another. But Jesus saw everybody who came in front of him. And we see that same thing in, in uh, the beautiful gate in Acts 5 when John and Peter see the man who's paralyzed. And, and there's something in the way Peter looks at him that, that he's seen this guy a million times, but now he sees him. He sees him through the eyes of Jesus and knows that he has something to offer this man. We, we've got to start seeing But we first have to see Him. We have to see His work all around us, in our lives, doing things all around. We have to notice, huh, that tree is in leaf in September, but it was not in leaf in August. It's not the time of year for that. We've got to notice these things because I think God's saying to us, are you paying attention? Do you see it? Do you see the new thing that I'm doing? Are you awake to what's going on around you? And then, to the people around you as well. And Paul reminds the Philippians, hey, because Jesus did that, therefore God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every nation bound, heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, and he calls them to that same thing. And it's the same thing Jesus taught. That he who humbles himself will be exalted. and he who exalts himself will be humbled. We're called to that attitude that's in Christ Jesus. And what's the end of that? Exaltation and glory. You want to be great in the kingdom of heaven? Become servants. Begin to see the needs of those who are around you. Begin to be aware constantly of God's presence. Seeking it and seeing it when when he's doing works around you. We've got a unique opportunity right now to see God's work because he took away everything else. There are all kinds of things we can no longer do at the moment because of this COVID thing. He's asking the church to wake up, look up, and see how we can become truly the force that we were intended to be. Thanks for listening to Faith Seeking Understanding. I'm John Green. Again, you can always interact with me on uh, Facebook through the Faith Seeking Understanding page. And it's just if you go to facebook.com, faith slash faith and understanding, you can connect with it there. I look forward to hearing from you, and I look forward to being back again with you next week.